All right, so today's um, talk I've, I've labeled order and chaos. If you look in your um, bulletin and you see the scripture today, it's Genesis 1. We're going to read the whole thing, which is why it's not printed in your bulletin. It's long. Uh, we're going to read that entire creation narrative here in a moment. And so order and chaos obviously relates to the Genesis narrative. It also in some ways relates to the structure of my talk today. <laughs> um, it is a little scattered. Um, and in the sort of the topics that we're going to talk about today, um, it's kind of all over the place. But by the end, I hope that it all comes together and it makes sense and it helps to make sense of this scripture. I do, for that reason, want to give you a little bit of an outline of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about boredom. We're going to talk about God's breath. We're going to talk, of course, about the creation. We're going to talk about the, the, the first creation narrative in specific. Um, a little bit about some biblical nonsense. Um, God's at war, scientific revolution, quantum mechanics today, um, the incarnation, and then ultimately poetry. So as you can see, that's kind of a broad spectrum. It may not make sense, but I hope by the time today's over, all of those things sort of flow together and help us understand um, this first Genesis narrative that we've been given. Um, this book, the Bible, is, I think we can all say, and you nod when I said it's an important book, we are Christians, and this is the story of Jesus, our Savior, and it's also the story of the people of God um, for, for all time. And as Christians, we come, and we've said this before, we come on Sunday and we listen to a pastor talk, and we worship, um, but if we're not then going home and reading this book, if we're not going home and studying and diving into it and asking questions of it and wrestling with it, I want to ask you, what, what, are you, what are you doing? If, if you say that Jesus is your savior, that you're staking your eternal life on the reality of his existence and his teaching and the words of God, what are you actually doing in your life, with your life, if you're not daily, at least periodically, a few times a week, opening this book and trying to understand it? What are we, what are we doing here? And that's not a slight or a, a ding at you or anyone because the reality is we know because groups have done surveys and asked this question that most people don't. You may be one of the few that actually on a daily basis opens this up and reads and tries to understand, but most people don't read their Bible. Most people don't crack this thing open and read the crazy old stories in the Old Testament and try to make sense of them. If we're lucky as a church, as a people of God, we're reading the New Testament and reading stories of Jesus and some of the things that we like and that are happy and uh, we benefit from and maybe are a little more accessible. Although last week we saw that in some ways they're, they're difficult. But I want you all to read this thing. And I know Caleb has issued that challenge in the past. If you're here today, the scripture's not up on the screen. I would say, if you brought a Bible, open it. If not, grab one of those pew Bibles out in front of you, open it, because we're gonna spend time in that first Genesis narrative, and it's gonna be helpful for you to be able to kind of reference that as we, as we talk. I want you, as, as we study on Sundays, I want you to go from this place and open this text and read this text. And I want you to pay attention to what it says. I want you to pay attention to what makes sense and what doesn't. I want you to ask, why is this story next to that story? We talked last week about how history 
uh, in the Old Testament, or in, in the biblical sense, in, in those times, was a gathering of stories and, and, or, and putting them together in an ordered meeting. So they're telling history for a purpose. It's not just objective events thrown together, right? There's a reason that Luke tells his stories in a certain way. There's a reason that John tells it differently and Matthew tells it differently and they put them together. They're trying to tell you something. And so the question is, why are these things ordered the way they are? And then you have to ask questions like, why does this one writer say one thing and this other writer says this other thing and they seem to butt into each other and conflict with one another? How do we make sense of that? Those are real questions that as Christians we must wrestle with. And there are ways to make sense of them, but you have to use your brain, you have to ask questions, you have to start to do some research and really dive into this thing to start to make sense of why and how these things all fit together. And so today I want to do one thing and reiterate the challenge that you've had before is actually open this thing this week. Today, tomorrow, the next day, crack it open, read stories. It's okay to write in your Bible. Get out a pen or a pencil and mark, or in a notebook if you don't feel comfortable writing in your Bible, write down the questions and then ask somebody or jump on Google and Google. Just be careful, it's the internet, right? <laughs> be wise in what you read. And if you read something that makes sense, maybe you follow up with somebody else and say, hey, does that make sense to you? So this is still the internet, right? Don't go to Twitter or Facebook and try to get an answer, right? That can be dangerous. But I want to give you permission also to be a little confused. It's okay to not understand everything. I want to give you permission to be perplexed and troubled even by some of the stories that you read. And I want to allow you and hopefully equip you to rest in the knowledge that behind those troubling and sometimes confusing stories is a good God who has seen fit to give us these stories. And so it is in, in some way in the struggling with these stories that we find God, that we find understanding, and we need to trust him to provide that to us. We say that this story has the power to change lives. We say that it has changed our own lives, but we don't read it. And why don't you usually read it? I'm looking for an answer here. You don't understand it. And if you can, it's actually kind of boring, right? These are stories that were written down thousands of years ago in language and structure and sentence structure that are sometimes foreign to us. Sometimes the details are kind of routine and they're really just sometimes kind of boring. If you wanna get real bored, if you, if you can't sleep at night, open Leviticus, right? It's actually fascinating, but you wouldn't know it when you first read it. It's just a bunch of laws and rules and, and the structure for the temple and the way that God sets things up as Israel's, Israel comes out of Egypt, right? And it's not exactly the most thrilling thing in the world. And so we have trouble understanding and it becomes for us this sort of weird collection of stories that happened thousands of years ago that have no real basis for our lives. At best, maybe there's some stories we can read and we can maybe take a moral of the story and we can put together either a system of morality or a system of theology and we can move forward. But as a story, they're just kind of dull. But Paul tells us that scripture is God-breathed. And so there's, there's a myriad of ways to understand exactly what Paul's saying there. We're not gonna go into that at this moment. But what it does mean is that in some way, shape or form, God plays a role in this text. God is here. God's in these pages, and we need to learn, therefore, how to read these things well. We need to learn how to read them over and over to the point that they become part of who we are. That, as I said last week, it becomes a story that we find ourselves in the midst of. And above all, we have to take them seriously. And my fear, and I know in talking to people, that one of the big struggles is taking, especially some, a lot of these Old Testament stories, seriously, because they are so wild 
and in some ways crazy to, to our modern sensibilities. And so today we're going to look, as I said, at the first Genesis creation story. You are aware that there are two, right? Some people are shaking their heads. Maybe that's a surprise to some of you. There are actually two. There's one in Genesis 1, and it goes 1-1 through 2-4, which we're going to read today. And there's actually a second one. Then in 2-5, it picks up again and retells the story of creation. Well, I'm going to read the entire story. So I want to invite you um, to grab your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. I believe what's in your pew is the Revised Standard Version. I have in my hands the New Revised Standard Version, so it would be very similar. Uh, but there will be some words that are different. If you have a different translation, it may vary even further. But I would just invite you to either read along or just listen for a moment. This will take a second. It's a lot of words, okay? It says, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good, and God separated light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit and with a seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, the trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seeds in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be the lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The word of the Lord. Okay, so we're gonna take just a quick minute and we're gonna sort of parse out the facts of the story as that story unfolds. So day one, God creates light. Let there be light. We're familiar with that, right? And so he creates light and darkness, night and day. On day two, he creates the heavens and the water. So he separates the water and creates the sky and then the water. And then on day three, he pulls the water back, creates the land and the plants spring forth from it. On day four, he creates the sun, the moon and the stars, the lights that are in the sky. Day five, he fills the sea and the sky with creatures. Day six, He creates animals and humans to live on the land. And on day seven, of course, he rests. Who has questions? Okay, sure. All right, so let's ask some of them. Jim, what's your questions? Yeah, good. So science, let's just, throw, let's just say science, right? Big questions, right? Who else has questions? Drew, you had one. Was that it, your question? What, what is it? Okay, you make light, then you make the stars. Yeah. That one's weird. Who else has questions? Did everybody hear him? He, he's, and he picked up, I, I, in my notes I said, I have questions, and one of mine is, he makes light on day one, but we know that light comes from a source, right? A sun, the moon, the stars. The moon, of course, we know is actually just reflected light, so let's say stars. Except light exists on one, day one, and the stars don't exist until day four. How does that work? Good pickup, Drew. Who else has questions? I'm a dietitian. <laughs> I'm a di- Sarah says, I'm a dietitian. Okay, this one's gonna be good. Okay, so there's a dietary question about whether or not we're supposed to eat animals. That's a good question. I don't have an answer for you, at least not out of this story. All right. Yeah, Jim, you got another one. That's that's a really good question. So Genesis is uh, we're, we're a little bit of a tangent, but it's a really good question. So what we think we know, and, and this, we, we can just say what we think we know at this point, is that the Old Testament, as 
scripture was compiled, we think, probably in the five, six hundreds BC. So it's in that exile, Babylonian exile, post-exile period. These stories, however, existed for a long time orally. And we've talked before about how as disciples and young Jewish boys and girls, they would memorize these scriptures, so they're passed down. Textual criticism, people who are really smart at picking apart texts, there is one theory, and it's called... Um, it actually escapes me, but it basically says there are three different sources even within Genesis. That's why we have two different Genesis narratives. One is what they call the Yahwist because they use the word Yahweh for God, and that is, gets translated as Lord. So when you see Lord in your biblical text, that's the word Yahweh. When you see God, that is Elohim. And so there's the Yahwist story, the Elohim story, and then another one they call the priestly narrative, which deals with some other things. That makes real good sense early on in Genesis. And then as you go through Genesis, it kind of falls apart. It all gets muddled. And so all we can say is it's a theory. It holds true for part of it. And so to answer that question, Jim, we don't actually know. Actually, there's a, there's a section that appears as a psalm. Some people think that it was actually a psalm that Moses himself sang. But as far as who wrote this thing down, well, who actually transcribed it, it was, it was a, probably a group of priests sometime in the Babylonian crisis period. But where they actually came from, who originated them, your guess is as good as mine. I don't think anybody actually knows that answer. What are the questions you have about this story? Okay, well, we hit a couple of, of mine uh, right out of the gate. I certainly have questions about like the, the, the order of light and then the sun and the moon and the stars. I also have a question about um, at each stage, at each end of the day, it says it was morning and it was evening. Except, well, how, how do we define what is morning and evening, right? Morning and evening is the rotation of the earth in relationship to the sun, Right? Those don't get created until two and three, right? So how do you have morning and evening on day one? Like there are all sorts of sort of observational scientific troubles with this. Let's also preview the next Genesis narrative because I stopped. What's about to happen in Genesis 2.5 is it all starts again, the second Genesis narrative. And if you know that narrative, you know that it doesn't match this one. It's a different story. And there have been attempts to try to reconcile those things and explain why one's different than the other and how they fit together, but they're not really good or convincing. Right? This one starts with waters, the, the waters of chaos of the world that God separates. The next one starts with sort of desert and dry land, and we're told that God creates a river, and out of that springs life. And then ultimately man gets created from dust and breathed into by God. And then after that, the animals are created and brought forth before Adam to find a partner for him, and there is no good one, and so he causes him to fall asleep, and then Eve is created from his rib. It's a different story altogether. And the question is, what do you do with that? Well, here's the other question that really boggles your mind. Do you think the, the editors, the people who are putting these stories together, or God himself, who we say inspired this, do you think they didn't notice, right? Do you think that they didn't realize, hey, we have a cognitive distance here. We have one story that's different from another. Do you think that God doesn't realize that those stories are different, right? I, I'm pretty convinced that he does. And so they stand there together in the same way that we have four different yet complementary gospels in the front of our, our New Testament scripture, these two stories stand in the front of Genesis as creation in different ways. And the question is, how do you make sense of it, right? I said earlier that I want you to take the biblical literature seriously. We can't just write these off. And that's usually what happens. Oh, this is an old story. I'm not really going to bother with it. I'm just going to move on and get to the good stuff. That's kind of too crazy. They were old and they didn't probably know what they were talking about thousands and thousands of years ago. Maybe we don't even go through that thought process. It's just, oh, that's weird and move on. But I want to stop today and really take this seriously and try to understand what is going on here. 
When things don't make sense in the biblical text, there's usually a reason, right? Things aren't there just by accident. There's a reason one thing seems to come out of the blue or contradict, right? Those are there, you need to stop. You need to listen and investigate and try and figure out why. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, ancient Near East is uh, the, the term for this time and place, the sort of three, four, 5,000 years ago time. There were a multitude of creation stories floating around. And I wanna to talk to you about two of them today. One of them that we're gonna talk about comes from Babylon and their creation myth involves the waters of the deep. That was sort of a common theme among creation narratives. And in time immemorial, time eternal before creation, those waters separate and they separate into salt water and fresh water. And those waters themselves become gods. And the two gods are Tiamat and Apsu. I get that right, right? Okay, so Tiamat is the god of salt water, Apsu, the god of fresh water. Apsu is male, Tiamat is female. And they get together and they spawn a bunch of lesser gods. But those lesser gods, they're young and they're impetuous and they're loud and they're crazy and they really bother Apsu. He can't get his work done. He can't sleep at night. Think about uh, taking a nice family vacation on spring break and all of a sudden you've got college kids in the, in the hotel room or the condo next to you. Like that's what's going on. He gets really upset. And so what's his solution? You might call the cops. He decides he's gonna kill them. That bothers Tiamat. Tiamat hears of it. She warns the younger gods to protect them. They're here, her children after all. She doesn't want them dead. They get upset. They decide, no, we're gonna kill him first. So they capture him, they kill him. Tiamat gets upset because they've killed his, her mate. And so she decides she's gonna get revenge. And so she gathers and spawns a number of other gods who go to war with the younger gods. The leader of the younger gods is Marduk. He and his younger gods fight Tiamat. They go to battle. In the midst of the battle, T or Marduk pulls back an arrow, shoots Tiamat, splits her in half, and kills her. When she's split in half, her rib cage becomes the dome of the, the world and the earth. Her tears as she dies become the Tigris and Euphrates River. After that, they go to another one of her sons who had, who's the one that convinced her to war against the younger gods. And they decide, you're the reason this has happened. We're gonna put you to death. And so they kill him. They take his blood, they mix it with the earth and they create man in order to serve the gods. So man was created as the slaves or servants of the gods. And you can hear in there some parallels um, to the creation story. And you can see why people are like, oh, the Genesis narrative is not unique and it's not different. It's just another take on the same thing, right? There's another one that comes out of the area of Sumeria. It's not quite as long, but there are seven great gods and there are a number of other lesser gods. And the lesser gods have to do all of the work, but they're upset about that and they're lazy and they don't want to do the work. And so they decide they're going to go to war. Again, lots of war in the, these old creation narratives. They go to war against the greater gods. Except right before they do, the God of wisdom decides, hey, wait, 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 rather than going to war, why don't we just create something to do the work for us? They think that's a great idea. So they're gonna create man. Except they can't just create it without some death, right? So one of the other lesser gods volunteers to sacrifice himself. He's sacrificed out of his blood, his flesh gets mixed with the earth, and they make man to serve them. They're pretty violent stories creation stories. But these are the, just two of a number of creation myths that are similar, that were swirling around in the world at the time when these stories would have been told and potentially created. Fast forward three, 4,000 years to the 1600s, 
And this guy named Galileo stands up and he says, hey, hey guys, guess what? The earth isn't the center of the universe. It's the sun and we go around it, right? And it was this dramatic shift from what is known as a geocentric universe where we on the earth are the center of all of God's good creation to an understanding that in fact, in our galaxy, the sun is in the midst of it and we go around it. And that caused all sorts of trouble in the church because that goes against what it seems to be implied in a creation narrative. And he was accused of being heretic. He wasn't actually tried, but he was then put on house arrest and told not to teach because it was so against church teaching. It unraveled a lot of the theological thinking. About 85 years later, this guy named Isaac Newton, you know that name, right? Sir Isaac Newton. He comes up with his three laws. Uh, He publishes them and he spawns what we know as Newtonian physics. The enlightenment comes out of it. The scientific revolution happens. And then we start to learn all sorts of things about our world, which is what Jim is asking about. Okay, we know things about the world and the way that it works. And it doesn't look like this. That works for 200 years. And then about 100 years ago, 120 years ago, right around actually in 1900, Einstein's around. And he, he comes up with this idea of relativity. Who knows what relativity is? Drew says, kind of. I, I'm not, we're not going to get deep into science today, okay? I just want to explain some things so that you kind of understand how this works. It basically says that every, everything is relative. So time and space are relative to one another. And, and what he determined, among other things, is that as you move faster and faster, time slows down. And so if you could actually move the speed of light, time would stop. And it sounds crazy, but we've done this. We know that as the astronauts go up into space and they're flying really fast, when they come back, their watches are off. It may say that on, on Earth, an hour's gone by, 56 minutes have gone by for them. It's slowed down. And so as you go faster and faster, time slows down more and more and more. The world is weird. At the same time, there is another group of scientists who are looking at smaller and smaller particles. And they've spawned what has become quantum physics. And this is the stuff of science fiction, except it's not science fiction. For now, 120 years, we've been doing experiments, and we can do this and replicate this time and time and time again. Everything, if you think back to chemistry, everything is made up of molecules. A a water molecule is H2O, right? Two molecules or two atoms of hydrogen paired with an atom of oxygen makes a water molecule. And for a long time, they thought that those were atoms, and atom literally means in Greek indivisible, that atom was the fundamental building block of the universe. Except we now can see better and test better, and we know that it's not. There are actually things that make up atoms. And if you've ever seen a picture of an atom, it looks kind of like a galaxy, right? It has in the middle a nucleus, and there are electrons that go around it. And those protons which sit in the middle are positively charged and the electron is negatively charged because it creates a magnet and they hold each other together. And depending on how many protons and electrons you have, you get different atoms. You get helium and oxygen and zinc and gold and all these different things are different combinations of these protons, electrons, and something else called neutrons. And this is where things get really crazy. We can actually measure electrons. We can look at them and find where they are. We can measure how fast they're going. The weird thing is you can't measure both of those things. And this is the point where some of your eyes are going to glaze over and some of you just just hang with me. You're not supposed to understand this. I don't really either. I've been actually really interested in the last couple of months. I've been watching classes from MIT on quantum physics and reading some books to try to understand the principles. And it's wild. Okay. So what happens is this electron exists and we can say it's here. But the moment we say it's here, we can't say how fast it's moving. Or we can say it's moving this fast. But the thing is, once we say it's moving this fast, we can't say where it is. 
And so those things are in some ways mutually exclusive. And scientists call this superposition. And it turns out that an electron, these subatomic particles, don't exist in time and space the way that we think the world does. They exist in what's called a superposition, which is actually just a possibility or a probability. It is somewhere in here. And the wild thing is, they say, it doesn't actually exist anywhere until you measure it. The minute you look at it and you say, where is the electron? It chooses a spot to be. And the minute you stop measuring it, it goes back to a, a range of possibilities. And my brain just used out my ear. I, yours probably did too. But it gets even weirder. They have taken two electrons, and the science or the math behind this said this should be happen. And they, they, they determined this mathematically in the early 1900s. And this is something Einstein looked at and said, no way, not possible. Two electrons that get next to each other can become what's called entangled. So have you ever heard of the term entanglement? That's what this is. And so they relate to each other. And it turns out that when you spin one electron that's entangled with another one direction, so if you turn this one 180 degrees clockwise, this one spins the other way 180 degrees. It's called the conservation of angular momentum. There's an equal and opposite reaction, right? But what the math said is, that's fine and dandy when they're together, but we ought to be able to take this electron and put it in a box here, we ought to take this one to the moon, and it ought to still happen. And that's when Einstein said, you're nuts, you're crazy, that doesn't make any sense, it can't happen. And it took a while, but we figured out how to do that. And it turns out it's right. That we can take one electron that's entangled with another one and separate them by miles. And when we spin this one this direction, this one, not connected in any way, spins that way. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. It's weird. It's bizarre. We don't know. No one knows why. They can, they can say mathematical principles, and they can describe it, but they can't say why. It gets even weirder. You guys weirded out yet? You bored yet? <laughs> Sarah's weirded out. Yeah, I mean, I started reading this and learning this. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. That's, that was Star Trek. <laughs> like, Star, like I, I've, I've read about this, but, but this is actually what's going on. Have you ever heard of something called dark matter or antimatter? Right? Like, this is like science fiction stuff right here. They posited in the mathematical equations said that if there exists an electron, there ought to exist something out there that is just like an electron but has the opposite charge. So a proton has a positive charge and attracts an, uh, an electron, but it's different. What they're saying is there should be like an anti-electron that is the exact same thing with the opposite charge. And again, they were like, that just sounds nuts. And so one, guy, one day, a guy was running experiments, and what he did was he took an electron and he fired it into a magnetic field. All right, so a positively charged magnetic or negatively charged magnetic field. When you put two like charges together, they repel each other, right? Think about when your kids play with magnets. You put positive and negative together, they stick together. You put the same positive and positive, and they shoot each other apart. So that's what's going on. So they shoot this electron at this magnetic field. One, one electron goes in, two come out. One goes in, two come out. They do it again. One goes in, two come out. Where's it coming from? They figured out that as they shot it in, whatever was happening, this, this energy reaction that happened between the electron and the magnetic field caused an electron to go this way and what they call a positron to go the other way. And that positron, turns out, was that electron with the opposite charge. Those things exist, and that's dark matter. Now, now what happens is when dark matter or antimatter, this positron, comes into contact with its opposite, the electron, they annihilate each other. So in a flash of light, they just disappear. 
And so two electrons came back, another positron went the other way until it comes into contact with an electron and there's another flash of light and they disappear over here. So what it turns out is matter and energy are just the same thing in different forms. And at this point, I don't know what to tell you. And before we think that it is completely non complete nonsense, this is actually a photo of antimatter. What they have discovered and be able to create is anti-hydrogen. So they've created these uh, neutrinos and positrons, which are the opposite of the matter that we see. They put them in vacuum tubes to study them with nothing else so they can't come into contact with matter and explode and disappear. But what you're actually seeing here, they can hold them for about 15 minutes in this vacuum tube and they sort of float over to the side. And as soon as they hit the side of that vacuum tube, those protons and electrons interact with these, the opposite dark matter and they explode. And what this is is an actual photo of that explosion happening as it hits the side. We've, we've created this in, in labs. We know this exists. What do we do with that? I mean, who, who understands that? Right? I've talked for 20 minutes or so about this. Who's like, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. I, I, that's what, I knew that. Not me. And the truth is the scientists don't really either. We can describe the phenomenon, but they have no idea why or how. They can't explain it. There are some people who think that it just absolutely disproves God. There are others that say, the MIT professor I was listening to says, the miracle is not that this happens with electrons and neutrons. The miracle is that electrons and neutrons act like cheese. It's just sort of acknowledging that there's, some, there's way more going on here than we can even begin to fathom. We live in an amazing world. But here's the question. And, and I, have an, I have a sneaking suspicion that we, in terms of the science, are just scratching the surface. That we are at the tip of the iceberg. And as we continue to develop new tools and new methods, and we get hundreds of years into the future, we're going to figure out that this, this is child's play compared to what we're, we're going. Because that's the way science has happened. We've developed a theory, we've figured out more, we've revised our theory, and we've, we've sort of built upon the things that have come before it. So the question is, how does an infinite God who's created all of this out of nothing, explain that to us? How does an infant God explain quantum mechanics to us? I don't understand it. I'm guessing you probably don't. The scientists themselves don't really. So let me ask you this. How would an infant God explain this to somebody whose picture of the world is God's warring and splitting each other open and creating the world? What kind of story or what kind of propositions is God going to put forth to a people living thousands of years that says, okay, here's what the world is. Here's how it lacks. Here's how I created it. Here's how it happened. My mind is blown today. Can you imagine what it would do to a mind that lives in the ancient Near East? We talked a few weeks ago about the incarnation and we talked in that context about how we as the church ought to be missional and incarnational in the world. And that all stems from the reality that God incarnated himself in his son in flesh and blood to come near to us. But this idea of incarnation, that is of course the incarnation, but the idea of incarnation of God drawing near and relating to us in ways that we can understand and making himself known to us within our world happens all over the Bible. God draws near to people and relates to them in ways that are meaningful for them. So when God wants to talk about creation, he doesn't sit down and give the ancient Near Eastern mind a lesson on quantum physics. What are they going to do with it? 
He doesn't give them a science lesson. These are not history books. These are not science books. Science, as we know it, is four or 500 years old. The questions that we ask about the world are four or five years, four or 500 years old. The mind of an ancient Near Eastern person isn't asking the same questions that we ask. Those things have not even entered their mind. In fact, this is a copy of um, the Talmud or, or portions of it. The Talmud is the collections of the, the rabbis' teachings. So we've, we've mentioned when we were talking about discipleship that there are rabbis and they have interpretations and they talk to each other and they toss scripture around and they try to figure out what it means. And at some point, people said, hey, we should write this stuff down. And so they did. And the Talmud is a, almost like an encyclopedia when it's translated. Um, and this is obviously not that, it's a summary of it. But in talking about or summarizing the theology from the Talmud about cosmology or the way the world is ordered, the Talmud basically implies this. It says the interest in metaphysical speculation, so how the world actually works, which characterized characterize the thinkers of Greece and Rome, we're talking now about that sort of first century period, was not shared by the teachers of Israel to any great extent. The theories of Aristotle and Plato about the constitution of the universe were probably not unknown to some of the rabbis and were not without influence upon them. But natural science as a subject of study was not cultivated in the schools of Palestine or Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, many Jews remained in Babylon. And so there's a school of Judaism that comes up there. That's to what they're referring to. It says, on the contrary, it was strongly discouraged. And so the teachers of Judaism, they're not, they're not trying to ask, how did the world get created mechanically? That's just not the nature of the scriptures and it's not the nature of the Genesis narratives in particular to be asking the questions that we want it to give us. We want to know how it happened, right? How did the stars come to be? How, how did, if, if it's the Big Bang, how did that happen? Is it not the Big Bang? We don't know for sure. And we want to know those answers. But that's not the questions that these texts ask. Those are not the answers they seek to give. And so when God wants to talk to his people thousands of years ago about what he did with the world, he doesn't give them a lesson. He doesn't give them a science lecture. He gives them a song, and a poem. What I've tried to do here is put day one and three along the left side and then along the right side, day four through six. And what you see on day one through three, God creates the spaces, all right? So he creates the darkness and the light, which were in the mind of an ancient Near Eastern person. Those were both created things. Light was a creation, dark was a creation, right? And then three days later on day four, he creates the things that will inhabit that space, the sun, the moon, the stars. On day two, he creates the heavens and the waters, the sky and the water. And then three days later, he creates the sea creatures, the fishes, the whales, the things that live in the sea and the birds that live in the air. And then on day three, he creates the land and the plants. And then on day six, three days later, he fills it with animals and us. And then we've talked before about how the creation narrative mirrors and mimics the creation story of a temple. And so all those six days together are God creating the space in which he will ultimately reside. And resting in ancient Near Eastern culture has to do with the God, the divine, coming to rest in the temple. And so day seven, it's not God just taking a break. It's God coming to reside in the world which he has created. 
in the same way that he comes and he descends and rests upon the tabernacle and then he descends and rests upon the temple. What we have here is not a mechanistic description of creation. What we have here is a poem or a song that opens up the story. Think about, you've all seen a musical before, right? Either in live, in theater or on TV, you watch like a Disney movie or whatever. What's the first thing that happens in a musical? A song. Everybody comes out and they sing a song and it's almost always a song that sets the stage for the rest of the story. It sort of encapsulates or sets the setting. It tells you and it foreshadows a lot of times what's coming in the story. And the, fir the first Genesis narrative is in many ways functions like that. We can look at it, we can see it that way. This is a, a narrative that tells us something true about the world. And it speaks to the mind of a person who lives in the ancient Near East that's heard all of these weird and bizarre stories and believes stories in which gods fight and they war and out of that war and that death and the blood, we're born as servants and slaves. And the beauty of the Genesis narrative, this Genesis 1 narrative, is that it subverts all of that. The point is not how, the order of creation. The point is, in a world that said, you are the servants of a warring and mean and capricious God, the Genesis narrative says, no, 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 no. There is one God, and he is good, and he is love, and he has painstakingly and intentionally built this world for you. He loves you. You are the crowning achievement of his good creation. It is following the creation of man that God steps back and says, oh, this is very good. It wasn't that a bunch of gods needed somebody to do their dirty work. We're not born out of violence. We're born out of love. And not only has he created the space for you, but he comes and he inhabits this space. That his purpose for us and for this world is to be the place where we exist for him, with him. We often say we exist for God and people think, oh, God just needs us to do stuff. Kind of like the, the other narratives are telling. But what God means when he says that he creates us for him is he creates us for relationship. He wants to be in a loving, mutually beneficial relationship with us. And so we exist, as we said, almost like priests to reflect to this world the good and loving nature of God and then to gather the, the praises of the world and reflect those back to God. And the Genesis narrative throws all of these other creation narratives that are violent and hateful and manipulative to the side and says, no, no, no. God is good and he loves you. And so it's this beautiful story that completely subverts every other narrative. And so when someone comes and says, well, the Genesis narrative, it's not different, it's not unique, it looks exactly like, or it's very similar to all these other creation narratives, you can say, and rightly so, no, it doesn't. It works within the worldview of the people at the time, but it says something fundamentally different than what everyone else is saying. It talks to us of a good and loving creator. And that point is crucially important. It sets up the entire story. In fact, when you get into Genesis 2.5 and you read, and if you want to open it now and look in 2.5, it starts off, it says, the Lord God. What does that mean? What are those words? The Lord, Yahweh, God, Elohim, right? And in the Talmud, as time goes on, the rabbis begin to interpret those words for God differently. Yahweh is 
describing the good, merciful nature of God. And Elohim is the just God. Now, not two gods, but two different terms for God that describe different characteristics. And what they say in looking at the, at the second Genesis narrative as it starts, Yahweh Elohim, is that when God created, it took both. That both a just and righteous God, but also a loving God. And they will go on to say that, that Yahweh, and they, they cite scripture to prove the math, but they say that God's loving, merciful nature is 500 times greater, at least, than his merciful or his righteous justice. But what this story does is set up that dynamic that it's a good and righteous God. It's not a warring and hateful and spiteful God that has created us. Does that make sense? I wanna step back one second and make the larger point that I hope to make today is that if you come to these texts expecting history or science, if you come to these texts and expect a list of propositions to find about the world, you will miss entirely the point. When we started this, I asked what bothers you. And the first, and this is, this is natural. This is everyone's tendency. The first thing you do is come to the story and say, well, that doesn't make sense. And that doesn't make sense. And that's not, we just, we know the way the world, the world works and it's not that. We know it's millions and millions of years old, not six days. If you do the math, and people have done this, right? The earth is some, somewhere around 6,000 years old according to the biblical narrative. Well, I mean, I guess you can believe that, but you have to thrust aside all of science and everything we claim to know about our world, right? But the point is that if you come asking the questions of scripture that is not there to answer, you miss the point. And that is true throughout scripture. As you go and you read and you wrestle, bear in mind that we come from a time and a place that asks certain questions and we hope to find certain answers from the scripture. And they're not always there because that's not what they were created to do. But the point is, there's a different purpose. They're not there for nothing. If you believe that the scriptures are God, God breathed, then they serve a purpose and a great one of that. And so step back, set aside your biases, set aside your frame of reference and try to put yourself back into that world and ask different questions. Because what comes out of it oftentimes is a beautiful story and a beautiful truth that God is trying to tell us. Much of these Old Testament scriptures in particular are not history, they are narrated meaning. They're there to tell you something beyond themselves. There's lots of poetry. How do you, how do you take poetry literally? You can't, it's not meant to be, right? We have things like apocalypse, stories of Daniel and Ezekiel and then Revelation you're trying to find science there, it's just not there. It was never intended to be. But if we can set aside some of our preconceived notions of what the scripture ought to be and, and take it very seriously, take it at its word and try to understand what it's actually saying, it says beautiful things and important things. And it's in wrestling with that, those truths, it's in wrestling with the scripture that at first seems nonsense to us, that's where we find God in many ways. God is incarnate as a man, but he's also present in these texts. And he's present as we come together and wrestle with them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good God that you are. We thank you that you are our creator. We thank you that you are the one and only God and that you have brought forth this amazing and majestic world, which 
we as modern people are only beginning to understand the inner workings of. We thank you also that despite the fact that it is beyond our comprehension and that you certainly are beyond our comprehension, that you choose and are able and willing to come to us in ways that we can understand, to make yourself known to us. That as the Genesis narrative tells us, the whole purpose of this creation, the whole purpose of our existence is to honor and to glorify you, to be in relationship with you. And that is a amazing gift. And it is a truth of the Genesis stories, which we ought to grasp. And so we just ask that you would open our eyes to the truths that exist in these scriptures. Help us set aside what we want them to say and listen to what you are actually saying to us. We just thank you for all you've done and praise you for all you are. In your son's name and in the power of the spirit, amen.